Hello, this is Jim McCarty, welcoming you to the Elena Research Law of One podcast, episode number 102. Elena Research is a nonprofit dedicated to freely sharing spiritually oriented information and fostering community. And towards this end has two websites, the archive website, llresearch.org, and the community website, bringforth.org. I'm joined today by Austin Bridges and Gary Bean. In this podcast, we discuss spiritual topics through the lens of the law of one and our own personal experiences. We hope to not only offer resource and provide discussion, not to present ourselves as authorities with the final word on these subjects. Please exercise your utmost discernment while you listen to us ramble on. Many of the topics we discuss on the podcast come from questions sent in by seekers. If you have a question or topic you'd like for us to discuss, please send it in. You can email them to us at contact at lrresearch.org or go to lrresearch.org forward slash podcast for further instructions. Again, I'm Jim McCarty, and this is the LR Research Law of One podcast. And today we are going to be talking about the concept of money. Austin and Gary, are you all ready to go? As best as can be. Uh, I'm ready, and you might want to introduce our fourth guest as well. Oh, yes. I have some assistance on my end here. My uh, cat, Dandy Lion, uh, has some opinions on various topics, and he offers them. <laughs> so you never know when you're going to hear from him, but that he's, he's just, you know, trying to be helpful. He's a good kitty cat. Yeah. We're grateful for his expertise. Yes, yeah. he, he has an area for sure. Okay, our question this week comes from Ivan, and he says, and he asks, in the raw material, raw referred to the money system as part of a dark part of our illusion, the way how it works to enslave and control people, which seems true as power means money and vice versa. So my question is, how an adept of service to others path can work with such a strong catalyst as money or a greed for it? We all need to work or do business for money as it underlies our ability to live. And the more money you earn, the better you can live, which I guess is a concept of lucky knife nowadays, how to draw the line between earning money as much as needed for normal living and earning as much as possible to get a so-called financial freedom. In other words, to be able to gain power over other people who either serve you for your money or work for you for the money. Does it mean that being rich is something that is not a good way of spiritual growth for a service to others adept? What if the adept becomes rich and uses its wealth to help other people in need or in some other good way, such as a charity? Gary, how would you like to read the following quote and tell us what uh, extrapolations or nuggets of wisdom you can see in these quotes? Oh, sure. Okay. So 23.14? Uh, 22.5. I think. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, 22.5. Okay. So the questioner says, can I assume then that this drastic drop from a 700-year lifespan to one less than 100 years in length during the second 25,000-year period was because of an intensification or a condition of lack of service to others? Is this correct? I am Ra. This is in part correct. By the end of the second cycle, the law of responsibility had begun to be effectuated by the increasing ability of entities to grasp those lessons which there are to be learned in this density. Thus, entities had discovered many ways to indicate a bellicose nature, not only as tribes or what you call nations, but in personal relationships, each with the other, 
the concept of barter having given way in many cases to the concept of money. Also, the concept of ownership having one ascendancy over the concept of non-ownership on an individual or a group basis. Each entity then was offered many more subtle ways of demonstrating either service towards others or service to self with the distortion of the manipulation of others. As each lesson was understood, those lessons of sharing, of giving, of receiving and free gratitude, each lesson could be rejected in practice. Without demonstrating the fruits of such learned teaching, the lifespan became greatly reduced for the ways of honor, duty were not being accepted. Okay, uh, what do you see in there, Gary, where Ra's talking about barter and the uh, private ownership? Uh, how do you think that affects money uh, and, and people who have money or look for money? Uh, one key, first let me disclaim because I feel more comfortable having disclaimed first. And that's that I've been struggling with uh, self-doubt myself and I feel inadequate to this topic. It's a very sophisticated and complex topic that of course intersects with nearly every aspect of life and an illusion. And um, so I just wanna own that, get that out of the way. I'm gonna feel like a child talking about this subject in some ways. All various ages of children are giving our opinion. So we always let our readers know we just ramble on and use your discretion folks, especially <laughs> Uh, thank you. Some of us are more educated children than others. I'm not among the latter or the former category. Um, so one of the key takeaways for me in that quote is Ra talking about how uh, the, these, the emergence of these systems, one of money, two of private ownership instead of group ownership, gave many more ways of demonstrating service to others or service to self. So it's um, not, I read that to mean that it's not necessarily that forms of ownership and money are service to self, though in the main, I think they lend themselves to STS orientation toward, towards separation toward um, exploitation and degradation of the environment and, and the obliteration of sacredness and connection and gift. Um, however, nonetheless, these systems offer a lot more <laughs> moments, a lot more opportunities to demonstrate service to others or service to self. If someone you know is in need and you uh, deny them, perhaps for selfish reasons, in the situation of money, you've been given a new opportunity to demonstrate or to polarize in one direction or another, um, and vice versa. Uh, because of the enormous value we put on this hallucination that is money, um, this ultimately symbolic form, uh, it means something to us uh, enormously to the point that we create identity out of it. We, our survival is linked to it. So it's a decision of consequence, say, to uh, share money 
to give money freely without expectation of return or to use money to manipulate and leverage against somebody else. But that's um, one of my, one of my takeaways from that. Okay. Well, I think that's good that you're saying that we all have a choice in how we use the money. And that might be a more important thing than just looking at money itself for being service to self. Uh, Austin, how about you? What basic principles are in motion regarding money and people in this quote, as far as you're concerned? The primary aspect of the quote that I see is the same thing that Gary pointed out. Ivan, in his question, said that Ra referred to the money system as part of uh, a dark part of our illusion. And I don't necessarily think that that's what Ra is saying here. And I, I don't know if they did say that. I'm pretty sure they didn't specifically call the money system a dark part of our illusion. So what I see in this quote is, as Gary said, uh, that once the concept of ownership and once the concept of money replaced barter, each entity then was offered many more subtle ways of demonstrating either service towards others or service to self with the distortion of manipulation of others. And to me, that means that the previous system of barter and of non-ownership essentially, it may seem like a more positive system, but I think the implication that Ra is talking about is that it's kind of just the way it was and there wasn't a whole lot of uh, opportunity for polarization one way or the other and how those systems worked. And once that system was kind of abstracted in a sense, I think that the idea of ownership and money are kind of an abstraction of like social energy in a way that then that energy became a new field of uh, availability of uh, polarization for entities. And so uh, they could then use money and use the systems of money and ownership in ways of polarizing one way or the other, and not necessarily that it is innately a dark part of our illusion, which I would think Ivan's saying that's kind of a, a bad or evil part of our illusion, but that it is simply a part of our illusion that gives the opportunity of polarization and can be used in different ways and has potential for um, positive or negative ways of uh, using it, but that it has essentially since then been used for generally um, negative ways, uh, you know, the more dark parts potentials have been manifested more than the positive potentials, I would say. Yeah, so then once again, it comes down to the individual seeker as to how uh, they view money and how they use it. Uh, I think the classic Bible quote for that would be, it is the love of money that is the root of all evil and not money itself. So, um, and my thought on it is, uh, and I could be wrong, uh, but it seems to me that in barter situations, uh, both people determine the value of what they have to trade and what they <laughs> trade from another. This reinforces the concept of individual freedom from any source outside of the barter situation. It's just those two people making a deal. It is a self-contained experience in which the free will and unique qualities of each person are honored as fundamental to the interaction. And regarding the common ownership of property, such as uh, animals and tools, uh, emphasis is again 
on the quality of each person, whereas the individual ownership introduces the concept of separation of people and the amassing of personal wealth at the expense of others, maybe. Sort of like a, a lifetime game of monopoly. It's what you could call competitive consciousness that develops when people are required to play the money game instead of the cooperative consciousness that's more likely when you have barter and common ownership of land and tools and animals and other resources. Uh, any final comments on this quote from either of you? I've got a couple thoughts. Um, you had reflected that it seems to be up to an individual level of how somebody relates to money. And I would agree. Um, I do think it's worth pointing out that the way that the monetary system has become such, uh, it is the primal aspect of our world, basically. Everything revolves around money that it has been able to be used to then manipulate groups of people. And that it puts people, can put people in a position of uh, having that personal relationship biased, um, especially when, you know, there's large populations of people who are exploited uh, thanks to the money system. And those people don't have an opportunity necessarily to reflect on their personal relationship with money because all it is is uh, them trying to survive and they don't have necessarily the opportunity to sit back and take a more spiritual view of what it might mean to them because the survival aspect of what they're doing is um, sort of being imposed on them by a larger system that they don't really have a lot of control over. So I think it's worth pointing that out, but it is obviously, you know, every situation in every individual is unique and every individual has a choice of how to relate to any situation. Um, but sometimes some people have more freedom in being able to relate in certain ways than others. And uh, the other thought that I had was, uh, as you were talking about it, I was wondering if there's some sort of similarity between what happened with the introduction of the money system and the concept of ownership and what happened with the veil of forgetting. Because when you're talking about how uh, you know, prior to these concepts, there was this more uh, essential way of living that seems more positive, but then as it's sort of veiled by the money system and by the idea of ownership, it creates some further opportunity to polarize one way or the other, similar to how before the veil entities existed in what we would consider a more positive uh, way of living, but they didn't have that opportunity to polarize the veil introduced. So it seems to me sort of like a similar concept. Yeah, that's a real good point, Austin. Uh, <clears throat> this gives kind of an overview to the whole situation so that uh, you see that there are forces beyond individual people's control that are in operation. And along with that, I doubt that there are a whole lot of people that ever sit down and think really seriously about well, what, what does all this money mean that I'm working for, that I've got, you know, I think the only conscious spiritual seekers would really be wondering, you know, asking such questions like that. Right, it's such a tacit thing in our society that there's not a lot that calls us to really question it in that way. There's a lot of other things we start questioning first, I think. Right. So mm -hmm. any final comments on this first quote? I guess I'm looking at the topics you have lined out, Jim, and I think this might actually be a good time to bring up uh, another thing. And it's related to the line of discussion we've had going with this quote. And it's a quote from Carla from A Wanderer's Handbook that I wanted to read about money. 
Um, and just before that, I want to reflect what you guys were saying that I think literally anybody in this world who talks about money and tries to bring spiritual light to money, there's going to be some distortions and just, I think it's such a hard thing for us to grasp in our world that uh, nobody's going to have a 100% clear perception. So um, uh, what Carla wrote, uh, which informed my uh view of money as sort of energy is um, a spiritual approach to money could even include claiming that money itself is evil, or at least the love of amassing money. Certainly the teacher known as Jesus felt that the universe would provide what was truly needed and sent his disciples out on the road with no money whatsoever. And ever since the advent of monastic communities, poverty, along with chastity and obedience, has been one of the three vows taken by those who follow the monastic path by joining such communities. However, to my mind, it is far more near the truth of the situation to see money as a kind of energy that comes to us in varying amounts but that which, whatever the amount, we can look upon as an energy, as potentially spiritual, as sexual, or any other kind of energy. It simply depends on what we do with the money in our minds and in our actions. So what I see Carla kind of saying there is that like money is an energy just like any other energy we have available to us. We can have uh, any kind of way that we operate in the world. And it is simply how we apply that energy that we do have, whether it's money or some other kind of energy and towards what end. So if we are making money, uh, it depends on the mindset of how we are making that money and then what we do with it once we make it. And Carla in this chapter in a wanderer's handbook goes on to talk about how in her view that, you know, it's possible to accumulate money and, uh, have a positive mindset, but her view is that to keep that positive mindset is not to see money as something that is to be amassed and not something to be hoarded or collected, but something that um, is is to have continually flowing like any other kind of spiritual power. It's not something that you accumulate and save, but it's something that you put to work on your spiritual path. And she also talks about how, you know, she, um, you know, saves and treats money as a, a safety net, but ultimately how it can't be a safety net because we just don't know what the future is and stuff like that. So it's a very illuminating uh, chapter if anybody's interested on the money in a wanderer's handbook. Thanks, Austin. That's uh, very enlightening. Appreciate that. Okay, shall we go on to the second set of quotes? Austin, would you like to read 2314 and 15? Yeah, this sure. Final, uh, perspective on what Raw had to say about monies. Yeah. Um, so, uh, questioner, can you tell me the reasons for the disease? I think I already know, but I think it might be good for the book to state at this time. And they're asking about um, the disease that manifested in Egypt. So Ra responds, I am Ra. This is, as we have mentioned before, not particularly informative with regard to the law of one. However, the land you know as Egypt at that time was highly barbarous in its living conditions, as you would call them. The river, which you call Nile, was allowed to flood and recede, thus providing the fertile grounds for the breeding of diseases which may be carried by insects. Also, the preparation of foodstuffs allowed for diseases to form. Also, there was difficulty in many cases with sources of water, and water which was taken caused disease due to the organisms therein. 
So Don asks then, I was really questioning more about the basic cause of the disease rather than the mechanism of its transmission. I was going back to the root or thought which created the possibility of disease. Could you shortly tell me if I'm correct in assuming that the general reduction of thought over the long time of the planet Earth with respect to an understanding of the law of one created a condition in which this, what we call disease, could develop? Is this correct? Ra responds, I am Ra. This is correct and perceptive. You, as questioner, begin now to penetrate the outer teachings. The root cause in this particular society was not so much a bellicose action, although there were, shall we say, tendencies, but rather the formation of a money system and a very active trading and development of those tendencies towards greed and power, thus the enslaving of entities by other entities and the misapprehension of the creator within each entity. Okay, so now what uh, principles do you see in play in this quote? regarding money and people's interactions with each other? Um, if I remember the full context of this quote, they're talking about why disease manifested in Egypt like it did. And sort of Don is trying to understand why disease was a catalyst for that society and how that catalyst manifested. What was the underlying spiritual mechanism of that catalyst? And what I see Ross saying is that the because a money system was created and created that sort of abstract social spiritual energy, it was then used in a way that uh, had tendencies towards greed or power and enslaving entities. And I would assume that because it wasn't necessarily a fully negative society and it, they didn't use it to the full extent of being able to polarize negatively, that this was sort of a mixed uh, signal in essence, for catalyst where there might have been positive tendencies in the society, but then there's this negative overlay of uh, money used for greed and power that then caused a catalyst to manifest within the society of the diseases that Ra talks about. Okay, that's uh, really good. Uh, Gary, how about you? What do you uh, get as your takeaway from that quote? couple of things. One is that Ra says at the, the, at following the development of this money system that they say thus the enslaving of entities by other entities which you know we'll get into money seems very in support of and quote, the misapprehension of the creator within each entity. I, I find a lot of fruitful thought in the misapprehension of the creator within each entity. Uh, because the, when, when other selves are seen through the economic prism, then their true nature just as your own true nature is obscured. You are misapprehending them. Instead, you're seeing them as competition where um, for the same scarce resource, more for you is less for them, more for them is less for you. I mean, there's other ways that can be expanded to a collective 
say you want everybody in your neighborhood to be abundantly wealthy so your own uh, property rate increases. But um, generally, everybody is in competition for a, a finite resource. So that's not very conducive to seeing the sacredness of life or wanting the well-being per se of, of all people. Because how can everybody uh, be well if uh, one's wellness is defined as the mass accumulation of that which is uh, finite? and which needs hoarded. So this misapprehension of the creator and the system is corrosive, I, th I think, um, to the development of a service to others world, uh, not an insurmountable difficulty or not um, foreordained, but I think it lends itself to a, a, a corrosion of love and openness and, and free giving and sharing and holding those things which are in service to the whole as a common good to be owned in, in common ownership instead of um, each person scrambling for pieces of it whereby the winner who gets or the winner is the one who gets the most most slices of the pie and um, after you Jim if you still feel their space I wanted to read a few paragraphs from Eisenstein Oh, sure. Well, basically, I, I agree with both of you. My thoughts were that uh, the money system seems to uh, kind of standardize the value of the goods and the services, and then the people become entrapped by this standardized value that comes from outside themselves, uh, beyond their control. And they uh, tend to focus more on that, and as you said, rather than on each other and the creator that exists within each other, they're... Uh, focus of attention is distracted and uh, that really hinders the spiritual path and any uh, conscious realization that such a path exists so um, yeah i would uh, agree with what you both said go ahead with uh, charles eisenstein so this is from his book sacred economics which i made it about a quarter of the way into and i went back to review my highlights for this podcast and I think this quote connects to what Ra was describing in Egypt because uh, Ra talks about the development of, of greed and what we know, um, the tendencies to, toward greed and power. And uh, Eisenstein looks at that, that aspect of human experience, greed, and uh, sees it not necessarily as that which brings about the money system, but rather as a symptom of the money system. And he goes a level further and looks at, well, what are the roots that bring about the, the money system itself? So he says, um, ultimately greed is a red herring itself, a symptom and not a cause of a deeper problem to blame greed and to fight it by intensifying the program of self-control is to intensify the war against the self, which is just another expression of the war against nature and the war against the other that lies at the base of the present crisis of civilization. Greed makes sense in a context of scarcity. Our reigning ideology assumes it. It is built into our story of self. The separate self in a universe governed by hostile or indifferent forces is always at the edge of extinction and secure only to the extent that it can control these forces. Cast into an objective universe external to ourselves, we must compete with each other for limited resources. 
based on the story of the separate self, both biology and economics have therefore written greed into their basic axioms. In biology, it is the gene seeking to maximize reproductive self-interest. In economics, it is the rational actor seeking to maximize financial self-interest. But what if the assumption of scarcity is false, a projection of our ideology and not the ultimate reality? If so, then greed is not written into our biology, but is a mere symptom of the perception of scarcity. I, inserting my own note, I would assume that like it is this basic story that Eisenstein is describing of scarcity, of um, of a separate self needing to control its world, out of which arose this system, which then precipitated um, enslavement and greed and and so forth. And he goes on to say, an indication that greed reflects the perception rather than the reality of scarcity is that rich people tend to be less generous than poor people. In my experience, poor people quite often lend or give each other small sums that proportionally speaking would be the equivalent of half a rich person's net worth. Extensive, re extensive research backs up this observation. And he goes on and says, a survey, a large study found that Americans making less than 25,000 gave 4.2% of their income to charity, as opposed to 2.7% for people making over 100,000. So I'll stop there. Okay, well, that's uh, some good information there. Charles Eisenstein has a very uh, experienced and more professional view of the economic system, I believe, uh, more spiritual too. Um, any final thoughts on this quote from either of you? Yeah, I have some reflections on Gary's focus on the idea of misapprehension of the creator within each entity. As he was talking about that. It made me think about, uh, you were referencing earlier, Jim, how barter is like a lot more of a direct interaction and you are a lot more likely to uh, witness the value of a person or maybe what the person has done uh, when you interact in a barter system as opposed to a money system, uh, we tend to get removed from that sort of direct interaction. And I don't know, um, not incredibly knowledgeable about the origins of various money systems across the world, but what little understanding I do have is that money systems typically come about as a necessity of an increasingly complicated society where society continues to grow and complicate in such a way where it becomes impractical to rely strictly on barter because you're trading and uh, people are interacting in ways that don't allow for you know transportation of 20 chickens for a bag of rice essentially uh, i don't know if that's a fair trade or not but um so eventually they come up with a sort of stand-in for value. They determine what has value. And so you can trade 20 chickens for a bag of rice without actually having the 20 chickens in a bag of rice. There's an intermediary that allows you to trade the value of 20 chickens for the value of a bag of rice. So it comes about as a necessity, but then that sort of uh, the development of that doubles down to then make the ability for society to 
sort of become even more complex, uh, sort of infinite in a way. So if you think about maybe in ancient Egypt, as they were talking about here, um, somebody who wanted uh, to have some figs might go to somebody who harvested figs and trade them the uh, shoes that they created for the figs. Whereas once the money system was developed, there could be uh, somebody who created an entire business of fig harvesting and the people who then harvested the figs were paid less than the figs value so that the person who created the business could accumulate wealth based on their labor. And then that person who's harvesting the figs no longer interacts directly with the person buying the figs. And so that reduces the chance of the person buying the figs to apprehend the creator within that entity. They can't look them in the eyes and see the person who put in the labor of actually taking these figs and uh, offering them to you as their service. And so there's not an opportunity to see them face to face. And that then if the person who is buying the figs, if they want to create a positive service to others relationship with that person, it has to be a lot more conscious. They have to really think about the money they have in their hands and think about the person who's harvesting the figs and try to create the positive interaction through that understanding. And it's not just as simple as going to the store and buying figs. You have to then try to grasp the complexity of the system that has arised. And when our world becomes ever complex and we start participating in that complex system, we don't have the mental capacity, the mental energy to uh, put that kind of thought into every single social interaction, every single uh, time we use money. It's just impossible to think about all of the social implications of that money. And it's impossible to think about, I'm paying for this product and all of the humans involved that it took to get that product in front of me and apprehend them as the creator is I think beyond what is possible for human beings. And that might be part of why money has innately caused this catalyst of uh, this reduction in apprehending people as the creator, because it just creates a system that's too complex to do that. Well, that's a real good point, Austin. Yeah, it sort of suggests that uh, money is actually a very helpful facilitator for helping larger systems of people interact with each other, as you say, in an economic way. And that maybe, you know, nowhere does Ra or anybody that I've heard of say that money was uh, consciously planted here by negative entities to control folks. Um, so maybe it just arose out of the increasing populations and the, the needs of people to interact. Uh, that's an interesting thought. Um, any other thoughts on this quote from either of you? Regard, uh, I liked what Austin said and what you said as well, Jim, and just a quick point of speculation, and, and that's that Ra said that their whole journey through 75,000 years of third density in my read of their, their thoughts um, did not include the development of money. So it's quite possible for a whole planetary population to not embark upon this deviation. I don't know if that's the word. <laughs> With this experience, uh, and I think I would rather choose to live on, on that sort of planet. But um, anyway, I just wanted to throw that in the ring and yeah. move on. 
Um, they had 38 million people total. So I wonder if there's a breaking point somewhere. Yeah. Yeah. The, the sense I got is that Ra talked about sort of the conditions on Venus weren't necessarily um, good for a larger society. I think they described their environment as very harsh. And they said they had 38 million in their harvest. And I think I might be misremembering. There were more that weren't harvested on Venus, but that it was in the tens of millions rather than the billions as we have today. Yeah, there were six and a half million in raw social member complex and 32 million that didn't make the okay. Right. Around something to do with the, the amount of people and then the, how you decide to deal with each other. Although, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. Possibility. I imagine their society was much simpler than even Egypt. Oh, yeah, I would think so too. Okay. Um, any final comments on this, these quotes? Mm -mm. Okay. Well, our first question then is, um, does money serve to enslave people in our world today? And if so, how? I think we've started a little bit in this area. Um, Gary, do you have any thoughts on this question? Just a little headway into it. It's... Um... The general answer is yes, yes, for sure. And there's myriad ways that can be cataloged and studied. Um, one that became vivid to me, and it's just one among others, is with regards to debt and interest and loans. Uh, Trish and I you know, rented our whole lives and we, six years ago now, uh, got our first home and the, the whole field of economics had been so out of my interest and off my radar and still to the day, to this day for the most part it's a foreign language to me um, but purchasing a home forces one to understand how uh, mortgages work and when I realized the obscene interest that people must pay to banks and uh, financial institutions for the privilege of being able to live and uh, to gain shelter and, and to have a home was just kind of eye-opening to me. It was another glimpse into the, what the movie, The Matrix um, conveyed. In, in terms of, in the matrix, as most people know, uh, humanity is actually living in a virtual reality and intelligently designed computer simulation for the purpose of providing a power source to uh, AI machines. You know, they're overlords and 99% uh, of humanity is oblivious to this reality. And, um, you know, Neo wakes up in the, from the illusion of the matrix and sees the quote unquote real world as it actually is. And he sees this just endless fields of farms where each human soul is actually um, in this incubator whereby their individual electricity and power is harvested as energy for the machines. And just in this narrow realm of home mortgages, I realized that, holy cow, um, most of the homes in this country and around the world, if you 
look at every home. If you're flying in a plane and you look down and you see the circuit board of, of suburbs and homes and think that like each one of them is paying tens of thousands of dollars just for the ability to borrow money to pay for their home to these financial institutions. And even in the course of paying off their loan, it starts out weighted toward the interest at the payment that is starts out weighted towards interest. So you're paying more interest than you are principal on the loan. And each one of these homes is generating like a, a matrix battery, the power for these financial institutions. And they you know get richer and, and richer. And debt, I think, is a, a form of enslavement because when one is in debt to something else, they uh, you know, their their free will is curtailed. They are obligated. Um, I mean, it used to be so bad that there was such a thing as debtors' prisons, whereby if you didn't pay your bill for whatever reason, the crops failed, um, some other medical calamity, you would be put in prison. You'd be punished. And well, you're really, getting high pay. What's that? Well, where you earn really high pay, so. <laughs> Yeah, nowadays, um, prisons are also other forms of enslavement where either people are compelled or forced to work and for, for pennies on the dollar. And uh, so it's, um, yeah, that's just one window into the enslavement and the way in which these systems are designed such that through, you know, corporate lobbying, corporate writing of legislations and essentially buying politicians, the, the rich get richer and the poor get poor. And those poor are, insofar as they operate in the world system, you know, which is pretty difficult to get out of, they are, um, their range of free will is less open than uh, those who have money, like and Ivan said, he likened it to power. So, you know, those who have power can affect seemingly the world, or at least the illusion of the world, uh, more than those uh, without power, insofar as those without the money, without the power, aren't working together and realizing their collective power. Good points. Uh, Austin, uh, do you have any thoughts to share on this uh, question? Yeah, I think what Gary said was really good, and I have some correlations too. Uh, first, I'd like to read a raw quote that I think is very relevant to this, and it's Don asking about um, techniques of enslavement, and uh, Ra talks about before the veiling, um, they say, uh, there was no unconscious slavery, as you call this condition, at that period. At the present space-time, the condition of well-meant and unintentional slavery are so numerous that it beggars our ability to enumerate them. Uh, my interpretation being that the society that we have, this complex society, has so many aspects of uh, slavery. And you know, when we talk about slavery, we're not talking about like chattel slavery that most people would understand it where people are property that can literally be owned and bought and sold and stuff like that. But we're talking about a more subtle form of slavery. And especially as Ra's talking about well-meant and unintentional slavery, there are so many conditions that promote this unintentional and well-meant slavery 
on our planet that like raw can't even talk about it because there's so many of them. And I definitely think that the money system, I would not be surprised if it were the number one way that uh, those conditions of like unintentional slavery were brought about. Because like Gary was saying, you know, I have a feeling that most people who go through the process that Gary went through, they don't necessarily come to the same conclusion. Um, they don't see that vision of the matrix and all the human batteries where that energy is being siphoned off of them. I think a lot of people just, this is the system that exists. It's how you buy a home. It's what you have to do to buy a home. And so that's what it is. We don't uh, question it. And you don't really consider the fact that um, there, there is energy being siphoned in that process. And that relates to uh, how Carla talked about money as an energy and how I sort of see it as an abstraction of our like social spiritual energy where if we existed in a much simpler society uh, where money didn't exist, we'd be able to make a sort of social spiritual exchange more directly, like you were saying, Jim, with like a barter system. And that would be an effective spiritual exchange where there couldn't be this chance for a third party to come in and siphon off a bit of that exchange. Whereas now money exists as this abstracted concept, this sort of this alchemy that happens when we put in effort to work towards society and society then puts this value on what we've done and literally puts it in our hands in the form of money or as it is now puts it in the form of numbers in a bank account and that then is sort of this um we've created we've done alchemy and created the spiritual social energy uh, out of our effort and then that allows for the opportunity for that to be handed to other people in different ways. And we get tricked into giving it away in different ways. Like in our society, there's just so many ways that we don't even consider and that we don't really even have a choice in. Like if I remember Gary, when you're talking about mortgages, the whole idea of like the repayment going to um, interest instead of principal, there is no option, no mortgages available at all for anybody who wants to buy a home on a loan wherein they don't have to have their payments weighted towards interest first. And so we just don't have an option, but participating in this system in so many ways and to extract ourselves from the system is, uh, you know, we can do little things here and there and we can do the best we can, but it's like impossible. And I think that is kind of the idea of slavery is that it's not something that we just easily escape by realizing that it exists. I think that, you know, there's just so many ways that in order for us to really participate in society, even in positive ways, we have to engage with this negative system that Ra might call unintentional slavery. A really good point, sir, Austin. Uh, thank you. Well, uh, for my thoughts, um, from my experience, it seems pretty common to hear that uh, there's so many people that have jobs that they, they don't like, they just have to work for a living. And it's kind of like being enslaved. Uh, uh, their main goal, of course, is just like you were saying, paying bills and uh, reducing their worries about uh, having enough food on the table or gas in the car or clothes on their back or, you know, like you said, paying rent. Uh, the whole relationship with money seems to be one of, uh, I would say, competition with others uh, for getting the best paying job or the, uh, paying the least for what you want. Uh, 
uh, the, I think the common saying, I think that I heard you know, since I was a kid, it's a, a dog eat dog world because one is so uh, easily enslaved by having to work for making a living at jobs that people don't like. And then you deal with the, the corporate America, like you were saying, Gary and, and Austin, that uh, has all of these uh, ways of getting more money out of you, uh, even when uh, you're giving them plenty of money just to buy a house or a car or any other large purchase like that. So that it looks like uh, you feel like you're walking around with a target on your back and uh, constantly being bombarded by uh, the need to pay more money to this or that um, business or vendor. So any uh, further thoughts on this particular question? A couple uh, quick ones for me. One is that I read a book about Genghis Khan a while back memory refresher Ross says that that entity was one of a few in our history who self-harvested in the negative polarity. So he, he made the choice in service of self and achieved a harvestable level of it and penetrated the eighth level and was able to graduate to negative four density prior to the cycle closing. So reading this book about him, um, one, may have some awareness that he had the largest land empire in the world. And this is the 1200s, I wanna say, um, administrated by a nomadic uh, horse riding people from the steppes of Mongolia. And uh, so to govern and a territory that large, um, how do you control it all? And I remember reading in the book that uh, he didn't necessarily need direct control of, I'm just going to wing it here and say people or governments. Um, but what I do remember from the book is that it was uh, having control of the money system of various economies and the territories that he conquered was his primary means of exerting leverage and control and exploiting and um, harvesting the acquired energy from those conquered territories. And um, in 1125 through eight, Don is asking about Nikola Tesla and how and Don was asking what Tesla's mission was and Ra is saying that Tesla sought to free the, our planetary peoples from darkness. And Ra goes on to clarify that they mean that in a literal sense, Tesla wanted um, to bring light to the world and to open the infinite energy of the planet, Ra called it uh, to us without, as Ra says, the necessary emolument for payment in your money for that energy. But then Ron goes on to say, secondly, uh, you know, part of Tesla's objective, um, secondly, the leisure afforded, thereby exemplifying the possibility and enhancing the probability of the freedom to then search the self for the beginning of seeking the law of one. Few there are working physically from daybreak to darkness, upon your plane who can contemplate the law of one in a conscious fashion. So I read that to mean that um, Tesla 
hoped to free people from the enslavement of our industrial or post-industrial world where so many of our hours are obligated to some other entity uh, who is may be exploiting us for um, their own acquired power or or money um, and that condition that circumstance keeps us locked into a condition whereby uh, we don't have the space or many people don't have even the space to begin the conscious journey of seeking the law of one and that enslavement thus I would conjecture um, contributes to what Ra calls the sinkhole of indifference too. Okay, yeah, good points. And uh, it's interesting that uh, Tesla's uh, ability to work with the energies of the planet is now in uh, the auto industry with the uh, electric cars, and the Tesla being one of the first ones, and uh, taking over more of the uh, territory that big oil has had. In fact, I think now big oil is uh, actually getting into cars too, so various uh, types of automobiles uh, are uh, now being electrically powered. Ford has the uh, Ford Lightning at pickup and, and there are quite a few others around, I believe. So that, that's interesting. Uh, any more comments, uh, Gary or Austin? Not for me. No, not for me. Okay, well, the second question then, is there any way to avoid such enslavement in our world today? Is anybody using the barter system or any other system that might help free people from the money? Uh, Austin, do you know of any such systems around? No, um, not anything used in on a widespread basis in a way that successfully helps one to extract oneself from participating in the system of money. And just a quick note on on that, I think you know, when we talk about money as a system that can be used to enslave people um, and unintentional slavery, I think that it's important to point out or reiterate, because I said it earlier, that even as a positive seeker uh, participating in this system, we're bound to look at our chain of money that we spend on any given product. And if we carry it far enough down the line, realize that we're doing harm in some way. And it's just too much complexity within the system to grapple with for anybody, let alone a positive seeker, to extract themselves completely. Certainly everybody can do more, but I think that um, there is an innate uh, guilt that comes with just existing in this system uh, as somebody who has money to spend. But uh, is if there's any way to avoid such enslavement, I think there are ways that you can reduce and tr uh, try to um, participate in other ways and promote other ways. And uh, I don't know a whole lot specifically about those. One is something we've mentioned before that I don't know enough about besides just to reference it. And that is a system, a philosophy of organization called mutual aid, uh, whereby um, it particularly helps in, in times of people who have a need. And it's essentially just a way to express your need to a group and express what you have of value to a group and then connect the what you have to people who need it without having to view things through the monetary matrix, essentially. 
Um, you can Google it and there might be mutual aid groups in your area that you can participate in. Uh, I just, I don't know enough about it to really say more than that. Um, and there are ways that you can participate in barter systems like online, I think like online classifieds. I know people who use uh, online classified systems like Craigslist and other things to uh, find good trade values. Instead of selling something for money, they look for something to trade. But essentially, I think the issue is that even as much as you participate in a barter system, you know, if you live in a general society, you're going to have to pay bills. Uh, you're going to have to pay an electric bill. You're going to have to pay uh, uh, for your rent or for your mortgage or for gas for your car or, uh, you know, you might be able to grow as much food as possible, but I think very few people have the type of resources available to them to provide for themselves completely free of the system that requires money to participate in. So there might be things that we can do to lighten our participation with the system, but essentially I think it is what we're born into and uh, changing it will be a lot more about influencing the spiritual evolution of our society so that the money system isn't transformed and goes away completely, but so that the general uh, orientation of people in the system when they relate to money is more positive rather than uh, participating in it in the unconscious way. Well, those are good points, Austin. I think you're very right that the vast majority of people are pretty much uh, embedded in the system and are going to have to deal with it uh, on a hundred percent of the time. But here and there, like you say, there are some people that are making some advances in helping to uh, get goods and services uh, bartered or traded in some way that uh, might be able to reduce the burden of the bill paying, shall we say. Um, Gary, uh, you have any thoughts on this particular question? Yeah, a few. Uh, so, yeah, I like where Austin was headed regarding not necessarily the abolishment of this, this corrupting evil on the planet, though it has, the way it's been practiced has done incalculable harm, but rather the transformation of it. And that is uh, one of the themes of the book I was quoting previously, Sacred Economics, uh, Eisenstein describes how you know, money is a means of connecting human gift to human need. Uh, he, in his, um, what he understands to be the truer nature of reality uh, is a situation whereby everybody born into existence has gift or gifts to share with others that they, they, they want to share. It's innate to their, their selfhood, um, similar to the bird contributing its song to the air or the, the color of the flower. Um, it's, it's encoded into who it is and it gives it, shines it, shares it freely. And insofar as that organic, natural, original model is followed, then the whole benefits. And I want to read some quotes about that as in reply to your final question, Jim. Um, but uh, 
the the money system as it has evolved does not quite follow that model and does foster an environment for the development of service to self which you know as Ra describes is the path of that which is not so it takes that which is and and flips it into a false uh shadow version of what is and um in the former version there are positive attributes of money as uh, I think Charles describes it elsewhere in the book as a signaling molecule, like the way that money can be used to organize mass projects for um, of, of human effort and ingenuity and skill. I mean, think about us, um, uh, space born efforts, not, not the private commercial ones per se, but the, the publicly funded ones and NASA efforts and um, that among so many other crowning achievements that have been possible thanks to what money can do in, in a positive sense. But like Austin said also, um, just to touch money, to participate in the system in any way is still to cause harm somewhere along the line and to extract oneself from it. I don't know. I don't know to answer your um, your good question here. I'm not strong so much on big societal questions, but rather the individual path of using catalyst and seeking adepthood. Um, but I do have two quick examples of of unplugging from the grid. Uh, one of which is a guy named Jim McCarty, who uh, opted to um, kind of unplug from the grid as much as possible. He he uh, built himself a log cabin, cut down the trees himself, bought a piece of, on a piece of land that he purchased, well, had to use money to purchase that land and uh, own it privately. But uh, once on there, uh, lived a rather self-sufficient life, but still had to, um, at times, exchange his labor for money. I believe you cut uh, tobacco crops. And in order to um, supply his his own existence um, on that you know, wilderness piece of land, it was mostly self-sustaining. And then there's a story of um, Chris. I don't know if these a story of Chris McCamless, who uh, is featured in to, in John Krakauer's book Into the Wild, uh, of which a movie was later made by Sean Penn of the same name. And uh, he just, he just, like graduates from an Ivy League school. His parents are you know, wealthy or upper middle class and they gift him, um, he, he has uh, savings to commence his life with, but he's just like so disgusted by the capitalistic system that um, he rejects it all. He uh, tears up his degree, literally burns his cash in his hands and uh, enters off to live the life of a, uh, a rubber tramp. Um, you know, someone who's living on uh, foot and um, is not earning money. But even in, in that story, in his own journey, he uh, there were times he had to stop to earn money a little bit. And I'm wondering about the value of sharing those stories. But my my short answer is um, there are people far more with far more expertise to answer that question than I than I could about how to avoid that enslavement. Well, thank you, Gary. <laughs> uh, we know a couple of friends that live in central Kentucky that grow all their own food and uh, produce all their own power with solar energy so that uh, some things can be done along the area. And I think that other folks are doing it too. 
I've got a friend uh, in Boston that uh, mentioned in her era, there's a Facebook chapter of Buy Nothing where people advertise they want to give away something uh, and anyone interested uh, can contact them. And uh, then the giver decides amongst those who want it, who gets it and how it will be delivered or picked up. And I understand uh, after Googling this, that it's actually an international movement. Uh, and I think uh, all around the world that people are offering uh, this bartering uh, it's not bartering. Actually, bartering and trading are prohibited, and uh, they have to give and receive everything freely. Whether it's a motorboat or a banana or whatever it is, uh, there's 7,000 of these groups around the world are uh, engaging in this. So I think it's inspiring to see small groups of people at least taking um, a unique stand uh, on the topic of economics to whatever degree they can. And I have a hunch that as more people are uh, involved in these groups, then there's more ingenuity and creativity involved to find out ways of um, sidestepping the uh, usual economic system of, uh, of buying and selling. And uh, so I think it's really inspiring to discover that there are groups like this around the world that are using their own um, desire to cooperate with each other and to find ways of uh, getting what they need and giving what they don't need so that everybody benefits. And uh, I think that that's probably about as much as we could expect, uh, as you say, Austin, because the system is just so large the way it is that it's going to require most people to participate completely and almost everybody to uh, participate in some degree, but where we can find those little uh, jags off the road to uh, another path, uh, travel in another path, um, are most inspiring. And I think that's probably the way the whole spiritual journey goes, just my opinion here, that uh, um, finding your own path and uh, finding that which is of value to you, and uh, as Ross suggested here, it's being of service to others, is a, a very inspiring journey to make. And uh, if along the way you have to participate in a money system, well, then you do it the best you can with uh, your desire to serve others as first and foremost in your uh, focus and the foundation upon which you build the rest of your life. So uh, any other comments on question number two? Mm -mm. I have a, just a really quick one. And just to continue what you were saying, wrap it in with what Gary and I were talking about. I think participating in these systems, um, yeah, it probably does have some small practical effect on the system itself. I mean, less people participating in the system does help to transform that system and sort of weaken it in a sense. But uh, it's probably a pretty minuscule drop in the bucket compared to how ubiquitous the money system is. But I do think that it is very valuable in terms of the sort of spiritual orientation that it fosters. I think the more people that participate in something like that, the more the spirit of that kind of impulse spreads. And I think what we were talking about earlier is that the system itself is just seems too large to dismantle in any significant way, but that if we could help to change the consciousness of the planet, then the system would then follow that consciousness itself. It doesn't have to be dismantled. It could uh, 
be expressed in a different way. And just one quick raw quote, I don't know how related it is, but I see some kind of correlation in there and that uh, Don is basically asking Ra about if, you know, there's the potential for humans to create weapons that destroy the planet uh, at any given time. And Ra essentially saying it's maybe possible, but they continue by saying, it is the distortion of our vision slash understanding that the mind and spirit complexes of those of your people need orientation rather than the toys needing dismantlement. For are not all things that exist part of the creator? Therefore, freely to choose is your honor duty. And so it's a pretty stark difference between what I'd say is like nuclear weapons and the money system. But I think the concept is sort of the same that, you know, Ra called the weapons toys. And they said that it's their understanding that instead of attempting to dismantle the toys, if that's our focus, rather than focusing on changing the consciousness, or as they say, the uh, mind and spirit complexes orientation uh, of the culture itself will then naturally result in the more positive outcome. And they say, for are not all things that exist part of the creator. And so obviously the money system is also part of the creator and has the power of positive and negative within it. Right. Uh, all negative entities are part of the creator. All negative entities give the creator ways of knowing itself that wouldn't have been possible without their efforts. So, you know, the, I think it is a good thing to remember just what you said, Austin, that we are all one is all part of the creator and we're all on the spiritual journey together to try to figure out, uh, how to help each other get there because those of like mind who together seek shall farmer surely find. Any further thoughts on this question? Mm -mm, not for me. Now we're going to turn to something more of a religious or spiritual point of view, hopefully. Um, I'm asking in this question, could the quote from St. Ma Matthew be helpful here? But seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these sh things shall be added unto you. And so the basic concept here is to look at money from a spiritual or religious point of view, uh, which is really getting a higher overview here and to see if spiritually there's anything that we can do that would make uh, the money not be so important if we found something that was more important and then would the money then follow? Gary, what do you think? I think um, whatever one's, whatever the outcome for one's financial life is, I think that biblical quote points to a key principle for the student of the positive polarity, um, which actually I'll get to in a, in a second. I think that it's quite possible to um, live purely, to seek the highest and the best, to polarize to a maximum extent on the on the planet, and either ch you know consciously choose a life of poverty because uh, so because they have ideas about poverty being closer to holiness say whether from religious education or otherwise or do say to a rejection of the money system or they live a life of poverty just just because that's the way circumstances 
fell for them or they programmed for a, a life of poverty while still honoring what that biblical quote points to, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and these things shall be added unto you. So point being, it's hard to like reverse engineer a formula whereby do this, do thing A, get outcome B. Um, I can speak to my own life and the way I felt this principle was surely to an imperfect degree manifested in my own path. And that's that once I, my awakening, as it were, began at age 18 and my priorities and my values shifted, I was on fire for spiritual realization and spiritual service. I was um, committing to a path of seeking the truth. And that value for me was upheld above all others. I still um, did. I, I didn't. Some people might, when awakening to the path, like say, screw this dirty, rotten, evil capitalistic system. I'm not going to participate whatsoever. I'm not going to earn money. Uh, like as I was describing earlier in the case of, of Chris McCandless, who did that. Uh, however, that, that wasn't my path. I still um, had various jobs leading up to my moving to Louisville and then even once I moved to Louisville. But I never had, I never developed as an adult career ambitions um, because I saw earning money is just, you know, what a, a duty to the body and the life in an illusion and one has to earn money to pay for shelter and bills and food and so forth but like to me that was all secondary you know just a basic requirement of a physical body but otherwise what i my true ambition so to speak was of a a spiritual nature and that's just you know the path that I took and that involved working in warehouses and as a, a server in a restaurant and um, a delivery guy and, and so forth. And uh, as um, that path eventually took me to employed work for LL Research after a few years of living with Carla and Jim, and Carla created this position for me. And that blended with working as a server and working with Jim's lawn service for a while. Um, Jim, if you aren't aware, speaking to the listener, that is, um, due to money, had to launch his own one-man lawn service operation that was uh, operating for over 10 years, and I would work with him on Fridays. So anyway, um, I still held that same value at the, the top of my pyramid of values at the apex, that being, you know, spiritual self-realization and uh, circumstances fell in such a way as to give me this opportunity. And as I went further with LL Research and um, released the other job, Carla wanted me to work more hours. I reached a point in my thirties where I started to gain this anxiety and this growing fear that uh, I'm, what am I doing? This is play. I'm not, you know, the real world, quote unquote, is calling. I need to get serious. I need to go to college. I need to <laughs> find some some career, you know, um, a real career, you know, the, the world values and 
not this spiritual metaphysical organization. And uh, I had to contend with, with that for a, a few years of my life, um, but I never gave in to that fear as real as it was. And I continued my chosen trajectory of, um, of seeing this is my, my life path, this is my calling, wherever it leads, even if it's um, whatever the outcome, I need to continue with the trajectory that I have set for myself. And this is in no way to uphold uh, myself as any sort of example. It's just to say like, this is my closest uh, example of attempting to embody uh, this principle and that being my own path. And I lost the Q&A number uh, where Ra speaks to what I believe is similar. They are replying to Don who is asking about what's important for the positive seeker. Is it like discipline of the personality, meditation, et cetera? And Ra replies and says, this is, this is technique. This is not the heart. Let's examine the heart of evolution. And then I won't read it in full, but Ra goes on to say that unity, love, light, joy, these are the fundamental teachings of all planes of existence and materialization. So like, what do you make important? How do you orient yourself? What do you place your attention on? I think by magnetizing oneself to the, to the center of the bullseye, the, the core seeking of the creator in all things, then whether you are on a planet with money or without money, um, things will unfold for you in the most supportive and strengthening fashion to assist and accelerate your evolutionary journey. And I think that also connects to what um, Austin was describing about how at base, it's not so much a system change that's needed from the outside, but rather a change in consciousness that's needed. And then the system by extension will mold and change and transform to that change in consciousness, though um, not without crises and uh, challenge and uh, so forth. Okay, good job, Gary. Uh, Austin, you have any thoughts to share here? Yeah, got a couple thoughts. Um, first one is actually a quote from Kuo that um, relates to this quote from Matthew that you have shared. And this is actually also, I took this from Carla in the Wanderers Handbook, so I can't take uh, credit for finding this quote, but it is from uh, September 12th, uh, 1993. And they say, to better gain access to a right relationship with money, it is well to place concerns about finances within that holy of holies, which lies within your deep mind. The consciousness of oneness is a consciousness of infinite plenty. The creation is full of all that there is. Every need has that which can meet the need. This consciousness of infinite supply sheds a welcome light upon the soul besieged by financial worries. But what if you were to alter the term money and subsume it in the term energy? When the term energy is used, this may aid somewhat, for that which is energy does not need to be hoarded, but rather expresses its nature and its potentiation. Thusly, 
the general rule of thumb is that entities may do that which they must to gain enough energy to survive and be comfortable. This energy may be transmuted by those who see the spectrum of energies so that many things become money, and we feel sure that each can think of many instances where seemingly impossible things have occurred because of the trading of goods and services rather than insistence upon some single form of energy. So what I see Kuo saying there is that uh, placing our relationship with money into the same place that we place our spirituality and our connection with oneness, or as Matthew terms it, uh, seeking first the kingdom of God, then money is only a single form of energy that can help to manifest the, the safety or the comfort or whatever we're needing in that moment to survive. And that by uh, approaching our spiritual relationship first is uh, an essential aspect of um, having sort of this positive relationship with money. And, but there is one thing I want to point out and that's that you know us three saying this or Kuo saying this um, we are speaking from a position of privilege and we're able to reflect on money in this way but even Ra talks about it's in 1128 they say few there are working physically from daybreak to darkness as you name them upon your plane who can contemplate the law of one in a conscious fashion uh, so I think that essentially what Ra is saying that, you know, not everybody has this uh, privilege that a lot of us have to contemplate the law of one or contemplate spirituality in this fashion. And I think that this advice that Matthew is giving and that Kuo is giving is good advice if you have a way to relate to it, essentially, if you do as Kuo says, and it resonates with you, and you take it and use it on your spiritual path. But I think there are people who are in a position who, if you tell this to them, they'll say, those are some great words, but I'm working, you know, all my life, just to pay the bills, and it really doesn't help me much. And so I think it's important to realize that not everybody has the ability to consciously form this relationship with, as Matthew says, the kingdom of God, or to place our consciousness of money into the same consciousness of oneness that we place our spirituality. I think it's important to realize that uh, there are some people who simply don't have the chance to do that. And finding ways to serve those people in ways besides just sharing this concept uh, is important as well. I think those are good points, Austin. Uh, I appreciate them. Um, I think that uh, this quote probably not only deals with uh, conscious spiritual seekers, but very likely with uh, something more along the lines of the adept that has progressed even past the open heart and has gone into areas where they seek to be of service more and more purely with uh, everything they do. And the person that comes to my mind most uh, forcefully is Peace Pilgrim. Uh, she was uh, an ordinary housewife until around 1953 when she had an awakening, which uh, she felt was uh, life-changing, that she wanted to help bring about world peace. Around 1953, we were engaged in the Korean War in the 40s. We'd just been through the World War II. So it was her feeling that there could not be peace in the world until each person felt inner peace within. 
So she walked across the United States five times uh, with Peace Pilgrim written on the back of her shirt, uh, walking across the country for peace. It was her credo that she would uh, walk until she was given a, a bed. She would fast until she was given food. All she had as personal possessions were the clothes she wore, this little tunic and a notepad and pencil inside of her pockets. And she did that from 1953 until 1981. And uh, she ended up talking to so many people that asked her to come talk to my group and tell me about this and that. And so that was the whole idea was to be able to talk to people along the way and help spread the idea of peace. But that idea started within. So uh, again, here, Matthew, I believe, is talking about an idea and a transformation that begins within a person because you are on a spiritual journey, a journey that you've chosen for this life, for the entire life. And uh, the more purely you travel that path, then the more opportunities are given for you to serve in ways that uh, are not ordinary. They are extraordinary. And to be supported in that service by, I would say, the creator within that uh, clears a path for you. Uh, people who know her said there was just something about her that uh, uh, it was a presence that uh, protected her from, I mean, she was walking on the highway across the United States. All kinds of people are on the highway. And uh, sometimes you'd uh, encounter a person who was rather uh, uh, angry or uh, questioning or threatening and she would simply look at him as the creator and treat him as the creator and speak the words of peace to him and suddenly there was a transformation between them so uh this is not something that is for everybody uh, i mean it's for everybody that really really wants it and then has the grace of god to receive it i believe so uh, any further thoughts on this particular quote or question? Mm -mm, not for me. Okay, now we come to number four as a possible alternative or potential partial alternative to the money system. Could right livelihood be part of the answer? Now, as I was uh, cruising along on the internet, I found various uh, expressions of right livelihood. And there's a Vipassana teacher named S.N. Gunica said, if the intention is to play a useful role in society in order to support oneself and to help others, then the work one does is right livelihood. And then another definition was uh, earning a living without harming others. Now, I don't know exactly how you would know for sure you're not harming somebody, but if that was the intention, that's probably the important thing. And then the last thing was uh, uh, approaching work with joy and intention and committing ourselves to efforts that support justice, equality, and ecological sustainability. Right livelihood is our unique contribution to a more life-sustaining and enlivening world. So Austin, do any of these thoughts ring true to you or seem uh, like what you would call right livelihood? Yeah, I would say so. I think... Um it's worth pointing out that the idea of right livelihood, I, I think most people would understand it as coming first from Buddhism. It's part of uh, what the Buddha called the Noble Eightfold Path. 
and right livelihood is one of those parts of the path. And so it is a concept that comes from Buddhism. And my basic understanding is sort of what you explained. I think it's also worth pointing out that the Buddha existed in a society that was much simpler than the one that we live in. And I would wonder what his advice would be to somebody living now uh, who exists in this system where, like we were talking about earlier, it's so complex. We're so removed from the flow of money, the flow of this energy that uh, it's impossible to know where on that path we are harming people. And uh, taking the effort to examine every small interaction we have with money, whether we're spending it or even if we're earning it, uh, is kind of impossible. So I think this idea of right livelihood is most useful as a guiding principle that uh, we adhere to and do the best that we can while understanding that we live in a society that is increasingly complex and that finding right livelihood is not very simple. It's not the easiest thing to do. And um, we might uh, have realizations after doing something for a while that it's not what we consider right livelihood and then finding an alternative so that we can support ourselves and our families might not be uh, so easy. So I think the important thing for a positive seeker is to constantly seek the self-knowledge of whether or not what they're doing is adhering to the path and always ask that question of yourself and never stop asking it and uh, be comfortable and forgive yourself when uh, you discover that things might not be uh, adhering to that path. So I do think right livelihood is uh, one way to help address this answer for a positive seeker. It's possible to earn a living and have a vocation and make money without uh, deviating from our positive path, so long as we maintain that conscious relationship with it and do our best to reduce harm and promote compassion in what vocation we do take. Oh, that's very well stated, Austin. Thank you. Um, Gary, how about you? What are your thoughts on this right livelihood? I'm not feeling much in the way of personal thoughts, but I just uh, looking through sacred economics found a section called right livelihood and sacred investing. And I was reading it while listening to Austin because I'm that skilled. And uh, what, there's a few paragraphs here that amplify a lot of what Austin just said. Uh, so I'll ask you, I'll put it to you guys. We're uh, adding time here. Do you want to hear these few paragraphs or do you just want to move on to discussion? Go ahead. All right. Charles says, therefore, when it comes to right livelihood, I trust what feels good and right. What you might ask if it feels good and right to market toothpaste or work for a hedge fund or design nuclear weapons, I would say then do it. First, because as your awareness of the world grows, such work may no longer feel good and right. Second, because you will condition yourself to trusting that feeling. It will continue to guide you when it comes time to quit that job and do something courageous. Third, because denying our inner yearnings for the sake of principle is part of an old story of overcoming nature. The idea that our desires are evil, that we must conquer them for the sake of something higher, is its interior reflection. It is the same mindset that refrains from generosity because what if I cannot afford to afford it? The self-trust I advocate is inseparable from the basic premise of this book. We are born into gratitude, born into the need and desire to give. In other words, trust that it is not your true desire to comply with the conversion of the world into money. Trust that you want to do beautiful things with your life final few sentences. 
in right livelihood, then I suggest that we orient ourselves toward our need and desire to give. I suggest that we look at the world with eyes of what opportunity is there to give and how may I best give of my gifts. Hold that intention in mind and unexpected opportunities arise. Quickly, any situation in which you are not giving your life gifts towards something that is good to you becomes intolerable. Yeah, I think if we put ourselves in uh, harmony with our life's plan, the best way we understand it, that just what Charles says there, that right livelihood will make itself known to us as the opportunities come our way. Any final thoughts on right livelihood? No, no, thank you for sharing that one, Gary. Yeah. Okay, our last question is, would giving to charities be part of the answer? Now, I listed this question last, thinking that the majority of our listeners might not be able to make radical changes in their lifestyle and would still wish to do whatever they could in order to help others in some way that was more within the realm of possibility for their situations. For example, if you find yourself in the position of having a family to support and don't feel you can change your job to one of right livelihood, perhaps you could consider giving time or money or talents to charities like working for a food kitchen, helping out the homeless, or just working in your neighborhood to help neighbors with yard and garden works, scooping snow off their sidewalks, taking the elderly to doctor's appointments and visiting those who are homebound. There's an old saying that giving money to others is its own reward, which seems to be the subject of a study from 2013 noted by Scientific American, where they say, the people who spent money on others reported being happier than those who spent the money on themselves. This 2013 study examining the link between charitable giving and happiness in 136 countries found that people in poor and rich countries alike reported more happiness if they gave to others. So, uh, Gary, do you have any thoughts uh, to share with folks uh, who may not be able to make radical changes in their lifestyle, but who still want to use money in a service to others-oriented fashion? Yeah, I um, <clears throat> agree with that sense that people feel good giving to others. The back to what I was describing earlier, I see that as fundamental to our nature. Uh, you know, obviously, if we didn't have a veil, we would, um, that's how we would all operate. But the veil then confuses us and causes some to choose a path that denies and distorts their true nature. Um, I wanted to close by reading uh, Mr. Eisenstein again. And um, his, his book, Sacred Economics, is about, as I think I described earlier, the the making of money sacred again, finding its inherent sacredness and as part of a shift into a world of gift where the whole thing moves along because everybody offers their gift and in so doing needs are met. Not just the need to receive something or be supported or served in some way but the the need to serve others the need to give something so uh, these are a few quotes about gift 
that I found on, on different pages about Charles. He's not somebody whose every thought I endorse or emulate or admire. I have, I keep more or less in following him and um, disagree with some of his thoughts. But at the same time, I think his heart is that of a visionary. And more than most other humans I've seen, he um, marries what are the principles of the Confederation philosophy, some of their basic ones of interconnectedness and the sacredness of life with a very savvy understanding of world systems and all of that put into service of a vision of the birth of a new earth, the birth of a new world that we understand in terms of, of fourth density. Um, he sees as um, a beautiful, fundamentally, radically different world that uh, through our societal crises, we um, may emerge into the potential stands at least. So anyway, sacred economics is a look at our financial system and how it can be transformed. I would recommend it to anybody who's listening to this podcast. And I found a few quotes about gift on different pages. He says, within every institution of our civilization, no matter how ugly or corrupt, there is the germ of something beautiful, the same note at a higher octave. Money is no exception. Its original purpose is simply to connect human gifts with human needs so that we might all live in greater abundance. How instead, has, how instead money has come to generate scarcity rather than abundance, separation rather than connection, is one of the threads of this book. Yet despite what it has become, in that original ideal of money as an agent of the gift, we can catch a glimpse of what will one day make it sacred again. We recognize the exchange of gifts as a sacred occasion, which is why we instinctively make a ceremony out of giving, out of gift giving. Sacred money then will be a medium of giving, a means to imbue the global economy with the spirit of the gift that governed tribal and village cultures and still does today wherever people do things for each other outside of the money economy. Next quote on another page, he actually quotes uh, a fellow named Lewis Hyde for giving poetic description to the principle of the gift. Here's Lewis Hyde. The gift moves toward the empty place. As it turns in its circle, it turns toward him who has been empty-handed the longest. And if someone appears elsewhere whose need is greater, it leaves its old channel and moves toward him. Our generosity may leave us empty, but our emptiness then pulls gently at the whole until the thing in motion returns to replenish us. Social nature abhors a vacuum. Third of fourth of four paragraphs, Charles writes, Gifts, on the other hand, we intuitively recognize as sacred, which is why even today we make ceremonies of giving presents. Gifts embody the key qualities of the sacredness I discussed in the introduction. First, uniqueness. Unless the standardized commodities of today purchased in closed transactions with money and alienated from their origins, sorry, unlike the standardized commodities, Gifts are unique to the extent that they partake of the giver. Second, what makes them sacred? Wholeness, interdependency. Gifts expand the circle of self to include the entire community. Whereas money today embodies the principle, more for me is less for you. In a gift economy, more for you is also more for me because those who have 
those who have give have give to those who need gifts cement the mystical realization of participating in something greater than oneself which yet is not separate from oneself the axioms of rational self-interest change because the self has expanded to include something of the other and then finally paragraph on gift and that's it for me for this podcast um, just a little practical application of this that sparked my interest Charles writes, on my street, every family possesses a lawnmower that is used perhaps 10 hours per summer. Each kitchen has a blender that is used at most 15 minutes per week. At any given moment, about half the cars are parked on the street doing nothing. Most families have their own hedge clippers, their own power tools, their own exercise equipment. Because they are unused most of the time, most of these things are superfluous. Our quality of life would be just as high with half the number of cars, a tenth of the lawnmowers, and two or three stairmasters for the whole street. In fact, it would be higher since we would have occasion to interact and share. And on it goes from there, but I really love that thought. Back to you guys. Thanks for indulging my quote reading. Okay, well, thank you, Gary. Those were good quotes. Uh, Austin? Um... Do you have any thoughts on the concept of giving to charities, whether it's money or time or talents as being something that would be a way of serving others instead of them having to pay for what you might do for them? Um, yeah, I have just a couple of simple thoughts. I do think that uh, charity is sort of an attempt on society's part to sort of compensate for the uh, sway of the money system kind of creating inequality and stuff like that. So I think it is a, a decent way for people to participate in helping to um, serve others within the monetary system. I think there is a lot of intelligent discussion going on about the value of charities and nonprofits and uh, how they operate within the system and their there are some drawbacks and there are some uh, legitimate criticisms for especially like larger nonprofits and the ones that have accumulated a lot of wealth. So I think if you are called to participate in either sharing money or time or energy with any particular charity, uh, spending a bit of time to do some research or even finding an organization that researches charities on your behalf. Uh, there's one a few resources online that help evaluate charities and tell you uh, how they use their money and where it goes to. And so you can kind of uh, get a good idea for whether your money is actually being put into a positive system or whether you're kind of being duped and giving money to uh, an organization that doesn't use it for the purposes they say that they use it for. So it requires a little bit of effort to do it in a conscious and effective way, but I think that it is a good way to participate positively in the uh, giving back and trying to uh, sway the money system more to a more equitable system. Okay, that's a really good point there, Austin. I appreciate that. Are there any final questions on anything we've talked about today? Not for me. Mm -mm. Okay, well, you've been listening to Eleanor Research's Law of One podcast. We hope you've enjoyed the show. 
You can find more from LNL Research at llresearch.org and bringforth.org. Thank you so much for listening and supporting this podcast. A special thank you to Ivan for the question and to Gary and Austin for joining me today. If you've got a question or topic that you'd like for us to discuss, please read the instructions at www.llresearch.org forward slash podcast. There is an old saying that money can't buy happiness and that the good things in life are free, such as the earth beneath our feet, the beauty of trees, flowers, fresh air, the four seasons, oceans, rivers, and good friends and loved ones like you, who are our listeners on all of our LL Research podcasts. We send you all of our love free of charge and ask that you share it with others in the same manner. We love you all and we'll talk with you next time.